Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Father, as we now come to your word on this Christmas day, we want to pause to listen to and heed the instruction that you give us. And so, Lord, we pray now that your word would cleanse our hearts, correct our hearts, encourage our hearts, Lord, and we pray that Hebrews 4.12 would, would do its work within us. The word of God is alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, able to, to penetrate, as it were, the, the very heart, doing this deep work of conviction and enlightening and cleansing. And by your grace, even regenerating some, Lord, this morning. We ask this for your sake. Amen. Amen. This morning I, I woke up and I went to the blinds and I peed through the blinds and I wanted to be able to sing. It looks a little bit, it's starting to look a little bit more like Christmas but I couldn't do that. I think it's 20 or 30 degrees warmer today than it was on Friday. And I was a little bit depressed because last year I prayed, Lord, let it snow. Then what happened last Christmas Day? Do you know? It snowed. You know how many times I've prayed for snow and it's actually snowed? True. I was in October and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan with the Bruces many years ago playing football. And I prayed, Lord, let it snow. And Victor Bruce said, it's not going to snow. I said, I prayed. What happened? It snowed. And we played football in the snow. Do you remember? Yes. And it was, no, you won't bore you. It was so much fun. So I, I prayed. I prayed for several days. Maybe some of you have been praying against it snowing. <laughs> But I prayed, Lord, let it snow, even though the, the temperature has risen, Lord, let it snow on Christmas Day. So I, I was excited, because in the past, God had answered my prayers for snow. So I opened up the blinds and think it was <laughs> raining and warm. So I was a little bit sad. Can I still be happy on Christmas Day, even if there's no snow? See, I grew up in Florida. Where a, a white Christmas you never, 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 ever would would dream of. It's usually muggy and warm. But here in Washington, I've had many white Christmases now, and so I'm thankful for that. But I thought, well, I'm not going to be that unhappy because I have Christmas presents underneath the tree. It's a little bit sad because it's not snowing, but I can still be happy because on Christmas, what do we get on Christmas? We get presents. Now, I know that you're taught, and, and I've taught my kids, it's better to give than to receive. And on Christmas Day, that the, the joy is giving gifts to others. And, and I, I think that's true, but to be honest, on Christmas Day, in, in my heart of hearts, I'm thinking, what do I have under the tree for me? I'm 55 years old, and I'm still thinking, what's under the tree for me? Is there some... Surprise present that's underneath the tree just for me. Is it wrong to think that way? To a degree, yeah, to, to a degree, yes, and to a degree, no. And what I mean is that all of us need the greatest gift ever that we never deserve, and that's the gift of Jesus Christ. Specifically, the gift of God becoming fully man for you and I. God becoming fully human. God the Son becoming fully human to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for sinners, and then to rise again. That is the best gift of all, and it's given by grace without merit. That's why in Hebrews chapter 2, Verse 9, it says, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So that is, even though this morning it's not snowing, maybe maybe you don't have a lot of presents under the tree for you. 
But the greatest gift of all is God becoming a person to live the life you couldn't live and to die on the cross a way that you cannot die and to rise again. And now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father on high to do all that for all sinners that trust him. That truly is the best gift that came from the Savior that was on the tree. Not under the tree, but on the tree. And he gives that gift to us through faith. And when we're looking here at the book of Hebrews, we've been looking at this great gift to us. And that is that Jesus Christ, yes, he's fully God, chapter 1, right? Chapter 1, 4 through 14. But then also God, the son, is fully human. He, he became fully man. And we see that in chapter 2, 5 through 18. And so what we've said is that sometimes at least professing Christians can drift away from Christ. Even true believers at times, though they won't forever drift away from Christ, all of us at one time or another in our life, we have backed off from full pursuit of Christ. We've pulled away from him at different times. And here in this chapter... The Spirit of God is saying, because Jesus is fully God, and because now the Son of God became fully human, focus on Him with all of your heart. Deliberate diligence and your focus on Jesus. Not on angels, not on extra-biblical tradition, but on Jesus Christ. Because He's fully human, and He's fully human for you. And we saw that first in verses 5 through 9, it's just briefly explained but then in 10 through 18 it's beautifully elaborated on and so we've said a way to understand this passage about jesus become fully human is considering a bunch of s words suitable and that was in verse 9 suitable for jesus to become for the son of god to become fully human and then siblings, verses 10 to 13, that Jesus would call us brethren, that the Son of God, the, the Creator, would call us brethren is incredible. And then we talked about Savior. We see that in verses 14, 15, and 16. And then this morning, we'll talk about substitute. That is becoming fully human was suitable. God the Son becoming fully human involved Him having a relationship with us that is one of family, of siblings. He becomes our elder brother. We become his brothers and sisters in him. And then Savior, he saves us from the power that belongs to Satan, the power of death, and even from the fear of death. And then this morning, we'll look at verse 17 only. And that is that becoming human also involved Jesus becoming human to be our substitute have you ever had a substitute teacher? Who's had a substitute teacher? Have you guys had a substitute teacher? Yes. Who's been a substitute teacher? I've been a substitute teacher in a Los Angeles school district. I would not wish that upon any mortal ever. <laughs> ever. It was both hideous and also fun at the same time. Very difficult. Being a substitute is not always a good job. It can be very difficult. A far greater substitute that faced far greater danger and woe and misery was Jesus. So when we think of Jesus being our, our substitute on the cross, that was a, a hideous, terrible ordeal that he went through. And he was born for this. He was born to die on the cross for us, for all those that trust him. So this morning, we're going to look at this at verse 17 and our prayer is that God will use this to encourage us and motivate us never to drift away from Jesus, but always to get closer to him. When we drift, there's danger. We always want to be pursuing him, not drifting away from him. So as we consider him being our substitute, this is going to involve five things. First, this involves the necessity of the incarnation. Look at verse 17. That is, Jesus being fully human, becoming our substitute, involves the necessity of the incarnation. Look at verse 17, which says, therefore, he had to be made. He had to be. Had to be. It's a, a term of obligation. It had to be done this way. In terms of God's character, it, this was the only legal 
way that God can do this. In terms of God being holy and righteous, being just, being loving, this is the way that according to the very character of God, this was the plan. There was only one plan, and it was plan A. It was of necessity. Going back really to verse 9, it's the idea of being suitable. It wasn't just that it was suitable. It was the mandated path for God to take based upon his character. Not that God had to do it. There wasn't a lack in God that he needed you and I to give him glory. But since there was a lack in us, God became a man and took on human flesh. There was this obligation that he had to enter into the the space-time continuum of our reality of, of mortal flesh. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren. It's the idea not that there was this constraint from angels or this constraint from us, but constraint in his own inner heart to do it this way. For God that had eternal glory to add humanity to his being. And that's in a mysterious way, which we'll be looking at at different times throughout the book of Hebrews. The Son of God is 100% God and 100% man now. The Son of God, Jesus, God of God's King of Kings, but he is human of humanity, very human. And this was the plan, and it had to be the plan that God did according to who he is. Think back to Genesis. The plan started when? This plan for God to do this started way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So whether it's by his nature that God is holy, and by no means will he let sin go unpunished, God is love. He first loved us. We did not first love him. So whether according to his nature, which obligated him to become a human for us to go to the cross, but even based upon his plan, Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. God was obligated to have God the Son become human and die on the cross for us and rise again because of his own character, but also because of his plan. Now, further, then, this involves divine gospel compassion. Look at the text. Look back at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his who? Like his brethren. Have you ever had a, a dentist or a doctor that wasn't very compassionate? I've had many dentists or doctors that aren't very compassionate. Do you like going to them? I would prefer to go to a dentist that's very compassionate, very nice, a doctor that's very compassionate, very nice. When you look at verse 17, notice this compassion in, in, in this word, verse 17, like his brethren. You know, it, it doesn't say that God had to become, it, it does elsewhere in Scripture, but it, it doesn't say in this verse God had to become, Jesus had to become like his brethren miserable, filthy, disgusting sinners. Now in Romans chapter 8, I think it's verse 3, it says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Here, it's given this other dimension saying that God the Son had to become like his who? Like his brethren. That's being tender. That's being compassionate. And in my thinking, this is universe shaking. He had to be made like his brethren. And for God so loved the world. Yes, 100% true. But it's also the idea that since God so loved the world and so loved his people, as it says in verse 17, that he became like his people. He actually became a person. He became like those that he was loving. So that that creator and and that judge that we have to give an account to, became like the people he's going to judge. Why? Because he considers those that he set his love upon his brethren, his brothers and sisters. That is mind-boggling, reality-changing. 
because it's not just, again, you can look at John 3, 16, Romans 5, 8. It's not just that God, yes, he's the just judge, creator of the world. He's also the savior, but he is a savior, not just by a title, but actually by coming into our situation himself and even calling us brethren, right? We saw that earlier in verses 10 through 13. He calls us brethren, and then what does he do? He doesn't just say, you're my brothers. He enters into our situation and becomes like his, those he calls his brothers. That's compassion. That's grace. That's, that's mercy. That's doing something he didn't have to do. Incarnation is God the Son really becoming so completely human that he, he becomes our elder brother in, in a very respectful sense that God the Son and the incarnation becomes so completely human. He's not just calling us brethren, but actually he becomes like us. That is amazing. And maybe your initial thought would be, I, I, I don't know. Well, John 15, Jesus says, those that follow him and trust him, we are what? Not just disciples, but friends. Friends. Even Abraham was a friend of God, this is this condescending compassion and humility of the one that created the universe, the Lord, God, the Son. Again, certainly Jesus Christ is king, he's Lord, he's the judge of the earth, but he's also the savior, he's the lion, the lamb, friend, human, but also a a type, a kind of a holy, uncreated elder brother. He's entered into us. He's entered into the brethren, as it were. Do we think of Christ this way? Do we think of Christ as king and savior, uh, lion and lamb? But also, this intense personal compassion he has for the brethren. Additionally, this involves God becoming truly, truly like you. Look back at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. And even the, the Greek text here, you see what it says, in all things? There's a preposition in Greek, which is basically en. It means en, like inside of something. But here, it's not that preposition. It's kata, k-a-t-a. And it means according to our and measurement of. And in English, it, it, it just wouldn't sound proper to say, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren according to all things. It could kind of be like, what? what's that saying? But that is the, the force of it, is the idea that if you took a ruler and you were to measure me, my height, you know, like 5'10", right? Joking, not 5'10", but let's say I'm 5'10". That would be what I'm measured by. What if they measured all of our humanity so if like each one of you, your humanity is measured. And all that involves your humanity, inside and out, emotions, feelings, skins, muscles, all the veins and all the, the, the nervous system, all, all of these things, you know, hair on your toes, all, all of it, fingernails, eyebrows, all of that. Inside, outside. Your humanity, your how you think. Your, your reasoning capability, your emotional capability, your, your dreams. All that's involved in being made in the image of God. That's how God the Son, that's the standard, that's the dynamics that God the Son became a person. He comprehensively, completely became human. Now, we certainly will add chapter 4, verse 15, which says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, yet without sin. So, God the Son completely became, in a sense, more human than you and I. He was like Adam, right? Adam was created. Was, was Adam fully, Adam and Eve, were they fully human before they sinned? They were completely, probably more human 
because they had the complete image. We have the complete image of God too, but the image of God was not yet tarnished or damaged in them before they fell. Once they fell, that image of God was not destroyed, but damaged. What this text is saying is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became so completely human, he's called the second what? The second Adam. And we have to realize that God, the Son, and his humility added on a human flesh, as verse 14 says, and blood, bone, mortalness to his own personhood. Now, there's been so many books written in the past 2,000 years, and there is great mystery on how that humanity and how that deity coincide and the dynamics of that all working out together and we'll talk about that some next week in verse 18 and also Hebrews 5 7 and Hebrews 4 15 we'll, we'll look at some of those things but for today <clears throat> I want us to look at this real nitty-gritty humanity of Christ and so let's just briefly turn to the book of Luke Luke chapter 2 and you're familiar with these verses, but just to remind ourselves, Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Think about it in this way. When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was walking through Galilee and maybe down by the Jordan to Jerusalem, and he's walking on a dirt road, when he walked, was there like this glow that came from his feet? Like a force field. So that when the Son of God, the creator of the world, walked on the earth, his feet never got dirty. Mm-hmm. Have you ever worn sandals for a long time? People in India, <clears throat> oftentimes, most, most of the time, are wearing sandals. Uh, oftentimes, all the time. I don't know if that's true in Egypt or not. But the feet get very, 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 very dirty all the time. So when Jesus, when he was walking around, he would have sandals. But he's God. Would God... God the Son, would he get dirty feet? Yes, he did. Because he came into our realm, our existence, and was very much a person except without sin. So much so that look at Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes. Now, there were some incredible things that happened during the time when Jesus was born and before that, because it was a virgin conception, but the actual birth itself was a what? Normal birth. And God the Son became a man. And you, you know when there is a baby and the baby comes out of the womb and the baby can have all kinds of stuff on the head right? and, and the body and there can be the umbilical cord, all of that. Did that happen for Jesus Christ? Yes, that's what this verse is saying. It's saying what God did for us is he became a baby embryo and went through a, after the conception, after the miraculous conception, went through a normal birth process. That's that's amazing. That's incredible. So much so that look what it says later in Luke, same chapter, verse 40. The child continued to grow. Do we ever think about that? That Yeshua, that God the Son, as a human, grew. As an embryo to a baby that was born, and then after the birth, he grew up and became a teenager. <laughs> Never sinned as a teenager, ever. But he grew strong. Here's the one that is omnipotent, right? Could create everything from nothing, but yet not not divesting himself of his godness, but rather not using the rights and privileges of that godness and his humility grew as a regular, normal, young person, even increasing in wisdom. So even understanding the word and reading the word, he had to use effort. And we're not, we're never going to fully understand 
all the dimensions and dynamics of how that operates. We'll talk about it more in Hebrews 5.7, but you, you can look at Hebrews 5.7 and to see what it says about the Messiah, even in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death and was heard because of his piety. Well, he was God. But yet he, he still pursued a, a, a perfect godliness. And verse 8, And although he was a son, he learned obedience in the things which he suffered. And we'll talk more about that and all the details of, of what that means. But we can say, say it this way, and we mentioned this before, but God the Son put himself into our situation so that as a man... He didn't rely on his deity to know, to know the Bible. So when he was being tempted by Satan, and he said, it is written, it is written, it is written in Matthew 4, three times, it wasn't necessarily that he was using his full deity and saying, well, what I wrote is this. Rather, he's saying the word, the word that I've read, the word that I've studied says this, and I'm going to trust the author of this word, and that's my father. And that's why he says, even in Hebrews chapter 2, you remember, it talks about that he says, I will trust him, I will trust the Father. Or we can think of it this way, did, did Jesus as a year and a half or two-year-old have to learn how to walk? Or was he a baby, you know, like two years old, he just kind of floats around everywhere. When he was a year and a half, was he just this super amazing, like, he walked right from the womb. He started walking around. Is that what happened? No. This is the incredible humility of God the Son. He had to learn how to walk and talk and read. He's fully God. As God, of course, he invented talking and reading. But in his humanity, he humbled himself to the point where he would be like his brethren in all things. You know, sometimes somebody might need help with something and we can get irritated, right? Lord, this person's bothered me. I don't want to help them. Did God help us a little bit in his humility? So much so that he became so much like us. He, he had to learn how to walk and talk and read as a human. That's great patience he had with us in order to be our perfect savior. It's really quite incredible. There's many verses to look at. We won't take too much time, but John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 27. John chapter 12, verse 27. This kind of coincides with the verse in Hebrews 5. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. So in verse 27, Jesus is saying, my, my innermost being is really having a lot of problems right now. This is difficult for me. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. But was that easy for him? No, he says it's really, really difficult Lord, Father, in my soul, this is really a hard project, a hard purpose that I have to do. So much so that if we look at Matthew twenty six twenty eight, look how much that Jesus struggles even with a type of depression. Matthew chapter 26, verse 38. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Wow. Now, he never sinned. The Bible says he was sinned. So he was able to be so deeply grieved to the point of death that he didn't sin. How did he not sin? Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but we could say because he prayed and he didn't become paralyzed and because he still did the will of God. He didn't give in to, his, to this type of depression, but he plowed through it. 
clinging on to who God is and for who God the Father was for him. But what I'm seeking to point out is when God the Son became like us, he became like us outwardly, skin and bones and flesh and blood. He had a heart, a heart that would beat. But also inward, he had thoughts and had emotions and had a, a, a purpose. And he could, though he never sinned, there could be a battle, but always a victorious battle with sin. Do you ever have any kind of temptations in your thoughts, in your thought life? Yes, of course we do. Was Jesus ever tempted? Yes, but he never sinned. He became very much like us. So it's the idea that eternal sufficiency put on need. Now, the eternal God, the, the great I am, Jesus in the Gospel of John said, I am. Back to Exodus 3.14, the great I am that needed nothing and nobody ever and ever and ever from all eternity put on fleshly mortality that had to eat and drink, had to drink water and eat food. Otherwise, he would grow weary and die. He that needed nothing was always fully God, put on humanity, chose not to depend on his eternal godness and instead lived like a real human depending upon the Father, the Spirit, and the Word, so much so that after being tempted by Satan, he had to have angels bring him nourishment and to minister to him. That's how human he was. Could Jesus, as the Son of God, becoming human, was his skin super titanium? Could a a, a pebble and his slipper go, ow, ow, take it out? Or did he just go like, pew? He, would, he could be hurt by a pebble in his shoe. Could, could a thorn poke his skin and cause him to bleed? Yes. Was Jesus like a Superman? So if you put Superman here and... Jesus right here, who would look more powerful? Superman would look much more powerful. But the one that had all the power in the universe would be Jesus. But yet he didn't look like a Superman. He, he didn't come with Hollywood special effects. He didn't come as an actor. He came as a real flesh and blood human, but without sin. Never sinned. That's amazing humility. This is our great Emmanuel. So we seek. We should seek not to be a Christmas lily or an Easter blossom that thrives just during special Christian holidays, but all the time we're pursuing Christ. Why? He pursued us so much. He became flesh and blood real human. That's amazing humility and compassion. And then, fourthly, finally, this full humanity, it was necessary for propitiation. If you're not there, turn back to Hebrews 2.17 and note that it says that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We can think of it this way. A real incarnation was necessary for real and temptation a real incarnation was necessary for a real temptation. It was necessary for a real propitiation, right? So the plan that God was obligated to, to, according to his character and his promise, was to become a real person that could really be tempted. So he could really be the innocent lamb of God. So he could really be a true propitiatory substitute sacrifice on the cross for the sins of his people. He had to go through that whole thing. If he was not tempted, then he could actually not be this innocent, spotless lamb of God because he was never, ever tempted. He could only be truly tempted, like we are, as if he put on humanness and did not rely normally upon this natural deity that he had being God the Son. 
And it says, if you look at verse 17, he did this to become a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, this phrase, high priest, we'll see it's 17 times. 17 times this phrase, 17 times, is used throughout the book of Hebrews. And we won't go through all of it now because the book of Hebrews will go throughout this phrase, high priest, from chapter 4 on. But we can say this that there were Old Testament priests and there was an Old Testament high priest and they were to be holy and they were to be kind and compassionate and they were to offer a, a sacrifice once a year for the sins of the people. But even that high priest himself was not always faithful. They were not always merciful. They weren't always godly. They didn't always have fidelity. And even the sacrifice itself wasn't sufficient because they had to do it at least once a year. Yom Kippur, right? Once a year, they, they had to do this to take away the sins of the people, but it wasn't an eternally sufficient sacrifice. There needed to be a different kind of priest and a different kind of sacrifice. And so God's plan was that the priest himself would be the sacrifice and the priest himself would be the son of God. As you've seen, that has compassion, that has mercy, that's 100% obedient to God the Father and the Word. And so this is what Jesus did. That's how he becomes our, and is our merciful and faithful high priest. So much so, you can see in chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's the idea that Jesus was so successful as a high priest, himself being 100% obedient and pure, and accomplished the work 100% perfect, that he was able, as it says in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, he was able to ascend up to heaven and sit down at the right hand of God the Father, saying, my work is completely done. But to do that, he had to become human. He had to be really tempted. And it says in verse 18, for since he, he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he suffered a temptation. And his suffering, he was tempted, and he suffered through temptation and never sinned. And so that qualified him to be this 100% blameless, spotless Lamb of God sacrifice, himself being the Son of God, the Messiah. And what is it that he did? We see this at the end of verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And that, that can be a big word, sure, propitiation. But it, it, it's a lovely word. Maybe some old versions say expiation, which is not the proper translation. This is to make propitiation. I, I kind of wish we had a different word. Maybe you could say to make atonement. Perhaps you could say to satisfy. It's the idea of propitiation, of satisfaction, to to satisfy, even to satisfy that just wrath of God. That's the idea of propitiation. Some old translators didn't like the word because it was used of false deities. This word propitiation could be used perhaps like of satisfying the Indian god Ganesh or Ram. They had to be satisfied. Their, their wrath had to be propitiated. Well, the idea itself is not necessarily wrong. Those gods are satanic false gods, but God himself must be propitiated, satisfied, appeased. Why? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, Nahum 1, 7, Exodus 34, 7. By no means will God let the guilty go unpunished. So when, when I sin, when you're sin, God doesn't take our sin and just put it underneath a rug and put the rug down and looks the other way. If God did that, he wouldn't be God. God wouldn't exist. The, the universe would just dissolve into nothing. God is so holy. Again, he's obligated, like it says in verse 17, to send me to hell. Because God is so holy and I am so unholy, God is obligated by his character, being a just, righteous, holy God, to send Tom Shuck and to hell forever. Because my sin is infinitely heinous before him. However, God is also love. God is also love. For God so loved the world. But God demonstrates his own love 
toward us. Hosea talks about God freely loving. First John 4, God first loved us. And so then God and his love developed a plan to pay for that infinitely heinous sin that I've committed over and over and over and over again. And that's that, that he himself would send God the Son. God the Son would be my substitute, taking that wrath of God upon himself. And then God's justice and his righteousness and his holiness would be satisfied. So then when we think of Matthew chapter 1 and Joseph and the dream, I think it is, that Gabriel says that Joseph, you're to call your son what? Jesus, Yeshua. Probably Gabriel didn't speak in Latin. He probably didn't say Jesus. Probably said Yeshua, <laughs> which means what? That's from Yahweh. That's back from Exodus 3.14. Yahweh saves. But Yahweh saves, Jesus saves, Yeshua saves through what? Through propitiation, through being the wrath taker, being the one that is that substitute that steps into my place and suffers the wrath of God for me. Jesus saves, Yeshua saves, but he saves through a substitutionary sacrifice. And this is the idea of making propitiation. That is effective propitiation. Atonement really saves. If your sins are propitiated, that means the wrath of God has been not just removed, but satisfied, completely quenched in a just way by God the Son dying in the place for all sinners that trust him. Past sin, present sin, future sin. This is why we have First John chapter 2. And if anyone, verse 1, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation. And, and in my margin, it says the satisfaction. The satisfaction for our sins, and not for us only, but for those of the whole world. So then, this is this gracious gift that God gives us through Christ. That God became a person with the plan to die for all sinners who trust him, stepping in their place and receiving the wrath that they deserve so that they don't have to go to hell. That is incredible. That's the gospel. We can't save ourselves. God initiated salvation with us. Salvation is all of God from beginning to end. He does all the work. Now, having said that then, just briefly, and this would be, if you're taking notes or looking at the notes, this is number five. This involves application. So first is this. Give yourself a gift this morning. Have you ever on Christmas Day given yourself a gift? I have before. I'm probably ashamed to say that. <laughs> I have wrapped myself a gift and put it under the tree and made it out to me. Not recently, but I did as a kid. This morning, I think a good thing, based upon God's word, is that you give yourself a gift this morning. If you haven't done it yet, go home and give yourself a gift this morning. And here is the gift. The gift is, it's a pass. And that is that you have a pass, P-A-S-S, to not drift away. That's the gift that you give yourself this morning. I don't have to drift away from Jesus. Because of all that I just learned, all that he did for me was for my good. He's loved me so much and humbled himself to such a degree in order to save me. When I deserve only judgment, he reached out and saved me. Like, like I, I'm part of the family. Like I'm his brother. Like I'm his friend. And so by his grace, I'm going to seek to get closer to him. And, you know, husbands, I think the greatest gift that you could give your family and your wife's husbands is that you get closer to Jesus. And the same thing for wives. The, the greatest gift you could give for your husband is that you're going to get closer to Jesus. Children, the greatest gift that you could give to your parents Number one, you get saved, you repent and trust Jesus. Number two, get closer to Jesus.
Or think of it this way. Because this can happen in our Christian lives. Let's say you know, you're so excited after the message to go home and look under the tree. Say so you go home and you look under the tree and you're surprised. Even the mom and dads are surprised. There's a gift underneath the tree you didn't see before. You open it up and it's a check for $1 billion. How would that make you feel? What would you buy? Don't say it out loud, but in your head, what would you buy? First thing I thought of that came to my head was an airplane. I don't know why. I thought of an airplane. Airplane. I don't know why. Big airplane. Like a 747. Yeah. How long would that make you excited, that, that billion dollars? I mean, truly, how, how long would it make you excited? How long would it be until you started having some hassles? If you had a check for a billion dollars, you know, you, you start spending it, you're helping people, you're helping yourself, you're helping people, you know, it's just, I got a billion dollars! Yes! Yes! Hallelujah! Yes! I mean, you, I would be like, you know, I'd be, I'd be sky, yes! I've made it! I've made, I can't, I'm never gonna have any problems ever now, I got a billion dollars! And then after maybe a month, Maybe sooner than that, what happens? There's all kinds of problems and stuff. And, and maybe you live another 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and that billion dollars never really goes completely dry, but it doesn't mean that life is really peachy, creamy, and easy. Would you ever give up that billion dollars? Would you be like, oh, you know, I have people asking me favor, wanting me to do them favors, I had to pay some taxes on that. You know, uh, politicians keep asking me for money. You know, these I, I've had a, a dental problem. I had a, a cancer issue. Forget it. I'm going to give up the billion dollars. Would you ever do that? Just give it up. I never would. <laughs> but what can happen is that with Christ, we have some problems in life. We have some problems maybe with other people, problems with our health, and what happens? Our temptation is to back away from Christ. I got busy with life, and we back away from Jesus. Is Jesus better than a billion dollars? I mean, I mean, truly. I mean, truly think about it. You have a billion dollars here, or you can have Jesus Christ. Which one's going to make you more eternally, truly wealthy? Jesus Christ. A, a billion dollars truly is absolutely nothing compared to Christ. That's true. So therefore, since we wouldn't walk away from a billion dollars, most of us wouldn't, why would we ever walk away from Jesus when he's loved us so much, according to this text? And then second, and we're almost done. Thank you for your attention. Number two. Rest ye, Mary, brothers and sisters in Christ, and not in anyone or, or anything else. You know, rest ye, Mary, gentlemen. Rest ye, brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Therefore, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That is, because Jesus Christ was judged and you replaced believers, if you trusted Christ, then Jesus was judged and you replaced. Then rest in him. You're not going to heaven because you're so good, because you're so pious, because you're good at church, because you've memorized your Bible, because you've done this or because you've done that or because you haven't done that. But rather, we go to heaven because Jesus Christ was judged in our place. And so we have repentant trust in him, and that's what gives us our peace. That's why Romans 5.1 says, Therefore now you have peace with God through faith, by justification. God's wrath was completely satisfied by Jesus. Amen. And so every morning and every evening, we should, in a sense, then start and end this way. You know, life can be hard. You know, life is really good, then it's really hard, then it's good, then it's hard. Hard, good, hard, good, hard, good, hard, good. And if we're not careful, we can just be like yo-yos. But instead, we need to be I'm going to breathe. 
in the morning and the evening when I go to bed. And I mentioned this guy, this video I saw, this former Delta Force guy. He comes, his, he wakes up at 4 a.m., calms himself down, breathes. Everybody breathe. Out. And he does that, I think, for maybe an hour or, or 30 minutes. Now, that's a pretty good practice. I, I, I think that can help a person to calm down. But even better is to breathe. Therefore, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The worst thing that could possibly happen to me is gone. I'm going to be with Christ forever. Not because I'm good, but because he's good. Thank you, Jesus. All my sins have been wiped away, past, present, and future. Thank you, Lord. I'm a sinner. Thank you for saving me. And then after you say that to yourself, then you say, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Because truly it is. The best gift that you could ever receive would be that your sins would be paid for in full. That's the best gift. If you're in Christ, have your sins been paid for in full? Yes. And so truly, though it didn't snow today, as of yet, even if it doesn't snow ever again, we can all say it's beginning to look a lot more like Christmas every day because the greatest gift that we could have is that the Creator is saying, I sent the Son of God in your place to take my judgment. You are cleansed. You are forgiven. Your sin is paid in full. What will you do to have a Merry Christmas today? I don't know where each person's at. Your life may be difficult. It could be hard right now. We're, what will you do to have a good Christmas? By God's grace, let's focus and adore God the Son. Becoming like us, God became like you. And then he died for you. <laughs> That's amazing. Is that, is that true? Is the Bible real? Is Jesus real? Then of all people on this earth, we should be the most joyful and merriest. Lord, we thank you for this great truth. May Christ be a reality in all of our hearts. May truly we say, it's every day may we say in our hearts, it's beginning to look a, like, a lot like Christmas because you gave us the greatest gift of grace. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, may you fill each person here with your joy, with the joy that was set before you to go to the cross. Lord, may, may that type of fullness of joy fill everybody's hearts in this room. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.